It's January 21st, 2018, and this is episode 352 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello, everyone. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Hey guys, thanks for being here today. It's uh, our first recording in 2018 and man, we just can't catch a break. So much stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, there really is. We always have so many different topics for the show, but you know, we try to choose topics by picking what's most relevant for our listeners. And one of the things that I think has been on a lot of people's minds, it's definitely been on my mind, is the Lightning Network and its development. And can this help relieve some of the pressure on Bitcoin scaling that we've all been feeling Adam, you played around with that recently, didn't you? Yeah. So Blockstream, uh, a couple of days ago, announced that they had actually done not just an implementation of Lightning to launch their store, but they actually were also launching a WordPress plugin for WooCommerce that would make it very easy for anybody who has a store to essentially uh, use Lightning payments and allow people to make microtransactions using this technology. So I went looking for it to actually try and use it. And what I found was that although the Blockstream website uh, and their store looks nice and looks like a normal store, you have to already have a Lightning Network wallet in order to use it. And they don't link to any on there. And so I went looking for Lightning Network wallets that work out there. And it turns out that actually there aren't any that work on mainnet. So this isn't really an announcement for normal people. It's more of an announcement for developers who can now start to really look at this technology without having to do like a from the ground up specification implementation of lightning, right? Because there are a bunch of different ways you can do lightning. This is a shortcut to get you from here to there. But we're still not to the place where like a merchant is going to be able to actually just turn on lightning because frankly, nobody has lightning wallets to make those payments with. Yeah, not yet, but it seems like it's getting significantly closer to being ready for prime time. And let's not forget, like I always like to remind myself and other people that, you know, Lightning Network is an open source protocol, I guess. And I like that they combined it with WooCommerce, which is which runs on WordPress, and that is also open source. So sort of the synergy of two open source pieces of software together. I really like that. And I think that Lightning would be very helpful for things like merchant payments, especially for small payments, obviously, because we've seen that Bitcoin payments on the main network are the fees have been increasing and a lot of merchants have dropped Bitcoin. But some people still see value anyway in being able to make payments online with Bitcoin. There's definitely a lot of value in that. It's just not really possible right now. That's kind of where, where I went as well is, you know, uh, one of the products that Tokenly has is a product called Token Markets, which is an e-commerce platform that was designed to accept Bitcoin payments first. But since the transaction fees have gone up and since, again, less people are spending Bitcoin, it seems like for smaller things, it has become a problematic payment method to the point where you see people actually recommending credit cards for smaller payments. And I think that Lightning really does have a chance to reverse that trend and dramatically turn things around. But there are a couple of caveats about that. So anyways, we're going to be doing a larger topic on this, talking with Elizabeth Stark, who works on one of the Lightning implementations within the next week or two. So it got me hungry for actually trying out kind of the Lightning Network experience. 
And I wound up at a Bitcoin test network hosted wallet called htlc.me, which you can try out for yourself just as like a normal user without any sort of developer experience. And essentially, they gave me a little bit of test Bitcoin on this Lightning wallet, and I backed up my wallet with a seed and all that stuff. And then I went to a site called Y'all's, which is, if you're familiar with yours, which uh, Ryan X. Charles, who we've had on the show before, that's his project, Y'all's is that concept, but with Lightning Network instead of with Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> so it's like a medium with a paywall. Wasn't Ryan working on a Lightning Network before he, he decided to switch to Bitcoin Cash for years? Exactly. But it's hard. It's much more complex to do that relative to just having all the transactions happen on chain. And again, like all of this stuff is still happening on testnet, right? So you could definitely see how this would be a tough choice. But my point just is, is that there is a site out there called Y'all's that's being run by somebody else that is that same concept kind of applied to Lightning. And it worked really well. I you know, was able to go to the site. I read through an article, got to the end of it. It says pay two cents in order to continue reading. And you click the button, it gives you an invoice number, invoice number, invoice address, which looks like a really long Bitcoin address. You take that to your wallet, you pop it into the, the send field, it pre-populates the amount that you're sending. It tells you the person that you're sending it to, which I think is encoded into the metadata somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where that's being communicated. And then you can just click a single button to make the payment. Payment happens almost instantly. And on the, the back end, the transaction goes through and it, you get access to the content immediately. And, you know, with almost no fees, I think it was in the testnet environment, there's actually no fees in a actual kind of end of the day environment, there might be a very small fee. But compared to the fees we're seeing for transactions actually happening in Bitcoin, it's really small. And in a use case like that, it actually makes a lot of sense. But I dug into it a little deeper, I talked to the developer of y'all's and I was like, how does this actually work, right? Because one of the problems with lightning, it seems like at least in the current environment, is that if you want it to be decentralized, the four of us want to be able to send money to each other, then I have to have a channel open with everybody and everybody else has to have a channel open with everybody too. Not true. I, I think there's a whole bunch of misunderstandings and confusions about how this is supposed to work. My point just is that in the way that it is integrated now, there is a single channel that goes between the hosted wallet that I was using, the htlc.me, and the you service, because there are costs associated with opening more channels, and it's simpler to do it in this kind of hub and spoke model. But that actually is where I wanted to go with this conversation, is to talk about how feasible it is to really do this in a fully decentralized way, or if we should just expect to see kind of a hub and spoke model or at least a model where we all have a channel with the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, right? Instead of all having channels individually in the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, then acts as an intermediary that allows all of us to have these quasi-trustless relationships with each other, but without having to open a channel to each person. So Andreas, tell me where I'm wrong on that, because I am trying to understand this, and it's confusing. So there's a big difference between Lightning Network and payment channels. Payment channels is one of the underlying technologies, but Lightning Network is essentially routed payment channels, which is the ability to connect payment channels together to create a route that allows you to send a payment to someone you do not have a direct payment channel via anyone else who through anyone else through anyone else through anyone else has a path that can somehow get you there so the real question about decentralization is what is the connectivity graph of this network how do nodes find other nodes who do you connect to how many channels do you need to have open in order to create a decentralized network? And how do you do routing? So all of those questions really have to do with the deployment and implementation rather than the underlying protocol. Meaning that 
the underlying protocol of routed payment channels can be implemented as a complete hub and spoke where we all have one channel to Coinbase and then everything else is run by Coinbase, which by the way, would still be an improvement over the current system where we all have a Coinbase account and we have to trust Coinbase to run their SQL server in the back end. The difference being that with channels, we would have a trustless setup where they can't steal our Bitcoin. But nevertheless, you can have every possible routing diagram or graph and connectivity graph that you can imagine. And really then it's a matter of implementation as whether you have something that is very decentralized or very centralized. And a lot of the discussion is about where do we actually end up if we start running this technology today? There's a lot of controversy around that and a lot of disagreements about where we actually end up. So for me, it's more of a question of, is it practical to do this in a completely decentralized way? And what is the sacrifice for doing that? Because as it stands right now, I don't think that you could operate anything that would look close to a fully decentralized version of the Lightning Network. But in the future, it seems like that will be even more true, because although we are gaining efficiencies and probably the block size will increase, the demand on the network will increase far more. So if it doesn't make sense for it to be decentralized now in the current environment, do you think there is an environment in the future where it will make sense? Or are you saying that in order to achieve decentralization, maybe we only need three channels open per person and that achieves a sufficient thing? Or are you saying we can get decentralization with just one channel open per person, but with a really complex transaction graph that's able to somehow accommodate that? Well, uh, there's an interesting implementation already, which is from Lightning Labs, which is the Lightning Network daemon. LND. And what it does is it completely removes that consideration from the user interface. So you do not explicitly open channels. Instead, it opens channels for you and manages all of that through a process called autopilot. And the idea with autopilot is to maintain a set of channels such that you are fairly well connected to other fairly well connected nodes but in a way that decentralizes the process. And it will open, I believe, three to between three and eight channels to nodes around you. And presumably they also open a number of channels to other nodes. And then you follow the the process. I don't know if you remember this idea of six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's a good analogy. Right. So the idea is how many hops does it take for any node in that graph to connect to another chosen node, which is their destination, with the number of connectivity they have. And so if you're connected to between three and eight nodes, and each one of those nodes is connected to between three and eight nodes, then presumably when you have, and I think on testnet there's about two and a half thousand channels at the moment between about 700 nodes, so that's about four on average, right? Then you have a network where you can route between any one of those 700 nodes to any other of the 700 nodes through a set of routes that does not exceed 20 hops. 20 hops is the limit on the network. So the network will construct routes up to 20 hops long in order to route between any of these. So there's one of the fundamental misunderstandings with Lightning Network is that you need to have a payment channel to your payee 
and that the cost to run that is you have to open it once and then you have to close it, which is two Bitcoin transactions. And given that the Bitcoin transaction fees are pretty high, why would you ever do that? That seems less efficient than simply making an on-chain Bitcoin payment. But the truth is, obviously, you don't need to have a channel connection directly to your pay. You need to have a few channel connections to a few well-connected nodes, probably nodes run in a very similar way as yours. And then you can route to many of the other nodes in the network quite efficiently over that. Therefore, you can keep these channels open, rebalance them as necessary so that you can continue to make payments and only close them really if you have a problem where one of the other nodes becomes unresponsive. Otherwise, you don't really need to close them. What you're basically saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's not one-to-one, right? So we don't all need channels. There just needs to be a path. And what's needed in order to achieve a path in this type of a network is somewhere between three and six connections to other well-connected nodes out there. So that would imply that you're talking about three to six channels per person that's participating. Is that every person that's participating, like just every normal user, or is that a power user, you know, or are there no power users in this system at all because it's so distributed in that way? Well, if you're running a Lightning Network wallet, and one example, probably the best example right now is one called Zap, written by a guy called Jack Mallers, is is that you your Lightning Network wallet is a node and manages its own connections in the background. In fact, it's probably running LND, which is the Lightning Network daemon from Lightning Labs, in the background in order to manage its connections. And it presents a user interface, which is very familiar to you, like a Bitcoin wallet. You scan a QR code, you make a payment, boom, done. You don't really know what's happening in the background. Now, keep in mind, that's not very different from the idea of you running a Bitcoin wallet user interface on top of, say, Bitcoin Core. How many connections is Bitcoin Core running to the peer-to-peer network in order to inject your transactions, receive transactions, validate them, and receive blocks? Do you know? I do not. Eight on average, but you don't have to know. And that's the beauty of it, right? You use a wallet, which is maybe connected to a full node, if that was the case, or if you're using the graphical user interface, you don't need to know how it constructs the peer-to-peer network. That should be a routing process, just like when you're connected to an ISP, you have no idea how many outbound connections that ISP has for redundancy to other ISPs. In the case of running a Lightning Network node and running a user interface on top of that, those details should be completely abstracted from the user. It should just have as many channels as it needs to have connectivity. And if it needs more, it opens more. And if it needs fewer, it closes them and then manages the fees accordingly. Okay. I think that that's reasonable. Let me just address the second of your question, which is what about power users? So a lot of people say, well, wouldn't a company like Coinbase or one of the other service providers, maybe BitPay, one of the exchanges, wouldn't they logically become a very well-connected hub? Why not simply replace all of the interfaces with their users, give each one of their users a Lightning wallet, allow them to trade through that Lightning wallet and effectively become a hub for all of those users? where those users only have one channel to this hub, and that hub has a million channels to a million users. Well, there's a number of particular concerns that make that really an unlikely scenario. Uh, The first concern is that when you're running a Lightning Network node and you have open channels, those open channels are effectively a hot wallet. 
right? And so you have to be careful. This is not a solution suitable for cold storage. And just like I wouldn't keep very large amounts of Bitcoin on my hot wallet on my smartphone, I wouldn't keep a very large amount of funds on my Lightning Network wallet for exactly the same reasons. You may have heard that in a payment channel, the other party can't steal your Bitcoin that's committed to the payment channel. So you can't get cheated by the other end of the channel to steal your Bitcoin. But that doesn't mean that someone can't simply hack your wallet and cause it to route a payment over the Lightning Network to their Lightning Network node, and therefore effectively get the value, right? They get the money. They just make themselves the recipient and they drain your wallet and it uses all of its channel capacity to send all of its money to them. And of course, it's just as irreversible as a Bitcoin payment and just as trustless and even more untraceable, and they've stolen your money. None of the channel trust has been violated. After all, you initiated all the transactions from your Lightning Network wallet, which was compromised on your desktop or smartphone. So, you know, you, you don't want to put too much value into that hot wallet, which means the exchange providers really can't just simply put all of the value online and route it to their clients. They're going to need to have the same considerations for hot and cold wallet. That's the first problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. So I have a question about a non-exchange situation, which applies to me. Token markets, right? One of the things I've been thinking about is that it might actually make sense to have token markets become a lightning hub and have people who buy at multiple stores on the site essentially be able to load in a balance and then have that balance be able to be spendable at you know various stores and various items all of the channels would be open to token layer you know token markets and then token markets of course still has to be trusted like you still have to have that component there but it would make it so that we could pay out bitcoin basically as soon as it's been paid to us because we have the guarantee of the lightning network transactions and if somebody was going to try and steal something from a person who had one of these channels open, the worst thing they could do is push it you know, to our company. So it's not like it could be stolen. And is that the type of use case that we're moving towards in addition to this fully decentralized one? Or like, how, how do you actually see Lightning being used in practical application besides peer-to-peer transfers? Well, you have to consider then, would you want to open a payment channel to each one of your clients? Or would you instead have them get a wallet that supports Lightning Network? and simply route payments to them through whatever channels your node decides it needs to open with whatever capacity it needs to open to route them openly on the decentralized network, rather than creating these manually constructed direct channels to each one of them. It's kind of like you're running a data center and you have a server and you have a bunch of customers, perhaps even the same environment with Tokenly. Um, do you want to simply establish SSL and, and, and let them connect from whatever ISP there are? Or do you want to open a VPN connection to each one of them? Now, you can, theoretically, you can open a VPN connection to each one of them. But the problem with that is then you have to manage all of these VPN connections, right? And you have to decide what balance you put into each of the channel. And that's going to be a pretty hefty channel, et cetera, et cetera. Why not simply let your nodes make those decisions and let their nodes make those decisions, route directly, dynamically over the open network, and simply your both endpoints on the Lightning Network, you get all of the same benefits. You don't need to open channels directly to your customers. And I think that's, a again, a common misunderstanding, which is the whole point of this is that it's dynamically routable. You don't need to set up specific direct routes as if you're setting up all of these one-off channel VPNs to your customers. 
that actually is something that I think I fundamentally misunderstood here. When I've looked at this stuff and I've looked at the scaling characteristics, I've been thinking about it in kind of a one-to-one -one fashion, and it seems like it's obviously not that. So the other thing I've been thinking about is that from a time frame perspective, it seems more likely we would start with quasi-centralized solutions because decentralization is really hard, as we've seen, to do in a way that's actually useful for practical application. So it sounds like you don't think that's the case. It sounds like you're indicating that, you know, the first types of lightning that we'll really see as users will actually be this already, you know, your wallet's managing it. You have three to six channels open with different people and you get access to the entire lightning network of people who are participating in that as you are, as opposed to having to open up individual channels at different places. Yeah, absolutely. There's two reasons for that. And the primary reason is that exposing that level of routing detail to your end user is a user interface disaster. Uh, it is way too complex to manage. It is too confusing to the end user. They have to make all of these decisions about security and routing and, and capacity and availability that they should not be making because there are routing algorithms to make those decisions. So I think the model we go forward with is very much the model we're seeing out of Lightning Labs, which is this autopilot approach to, we will figure out how many channels need to be opened into them in order to create a well-routed, robust network that allows us to reach as many nodes as possible. And we can do that based on the fact that each of the nodes is advertising routes essentially advertising what channel capacity it has and to which destinations so that you can graph the network and and find a way to hop from hop to hop. So that's one of the considerations. Um, the other reason is that, you know, I think the other big caveat is I don't think Coinbase is going to run Lightning. Uh, and I think there are many reasons why we're not going to see regulated exchanges run Lightning hubs. And, you know, one of the videos that I've seen going out online is about how the banks have compromised Bitcoin because they've created Lightning Network to serve they, their needs, which, which I find rather comical. You see, the Lightning Network is onion routed. And what that means is that every single route hop is encrypted in the same way that Tor is encrypted. So Tor, if you don't know, is the onion router, which is a anonymization technology that exists on the internet which allows you to bounce packets around the world so that it's very difficult to determine where you came in and where you're coming out. That technology, which is onion routing, is used inside lightning routes. And what that means is if you receive a packet, a lightning payment effectively from someone, you'll open that up. It's encrypted. Only you can read it. You open that up and inside it says, I want this forwarded to X. You can see it, it came from, let's say it came from A and you decrypted and inside it says this is going to be. Well, you have no idea if A, where it came from, is the original source or simply an intermediate yourself. You also have no idea if B is the final destination or if they have a forwarding channel behind them where they're going to send it to C, D, E, F, G, whatever. You have no idea. You also have no idea how long the route is because they always look as if they're 20 hops long. It always looks as if you are the second hop. You know there's one hop before you because it came from A, but it looks like there's 19 more to go. Even if you're the last one, it looks like there's 19 more to go until you decrypt it. So at any point in time, you have no idea if you're the first or the 19th or anywhere in between. You have no idea what the length of the path is. It could be just one hop. It could be 19 more. And so you have no idea where this is coming from and where this is going. And none of the endpoints 
have to be endpoints. They could simply be intermediaries that are forwarding further. Now, imagine this from Coinbase's perspective. They have a fully KYC AML customer on one end of their connection. But if they receive a payment that's going to that customer over Lightning Network, they have no idea if that customer is the final destination. That customer could simply be routing it somewhere else. If they receive one coming in from that customer, they have no idea if that customer is the origin. That could simply be routing from somewhere else, which means their KYC just fell apart, completely fell apart. If they do that, they're in violation of those regulations. They must know the original source and the final destination for every payment that they're routing, which means they cannot run a Lightning Network. I think that I have a pretty good understanding of where we are right now and where we seem to be going. One question I have that's remaining is right now we're talking about this in the context of everyone running their own node, right? And everyone actually having a, a copy of Bitcoin and uh, you know having a daemon running in the background. That's not how most users use Bitcoin at this point. There's a process called simple payment verification or SPV. Does that come into play here? Should everyone be expecting that they're going to be running their own node or is that just, of course, the early stage that we're in right now where we haven't gotten to the part where there are, you know, light nodes and light wallets. Actually, I mean, the wallet I used yesterday uh, on testnet, that was actually a hosted wallet. So clearly it is possible. But what, I mean, do you, ex how do you expect people to interact with this normally? Well, th that question has already been answered also, which is, uh, of course, you can run a full node, a fully validating node. So you can validate the open and closed transactions and all of the intermediate transactions for Lightning Network. And that gives you the same level of independent authoritative validation that you get in the trust and security model of Bitcoin. However, you can also run a light SPV client behind your Lightning node. So the implementation that has come out from Lightning Labs, LND, by default runs a client called Neutrino, which is, it's kind of like an SPV node. It's actually an improved version of SPV that has better privacy guarantees and a better bandwidth considerations, which basically makes so that you do not require a fully validating node. That means it is a lightweight node already. I was thinking about this as if any place I want to go to, I'm going to have to open up channels there because this is going to be kind of a hub-based system. It sounds like that's not the case. It sounds like really it's just a number of transactions and then it's the entire access to the entire system. And so that makes it so that even if it costs 20 bucks to open up that many channels or maybe 50 bucks to open up that many channels, there's actually a good reason potentially to put in $500 worth of value because you're not going to be putting it in just for that one, this electric service, right? That you're getting or Wi-Fi or whatever. Instead, it's just like, that's your wallet. And then the Lightning wallet can have that type of frictionless, very low cost transaction happen with any of these different places. So that I think does uh, resolve a lot of issues that I had in my head about where we were going with this. There's a few other important considerations which have to do with fees. Right now, we're looking at a fairly worst case scenario for fees where they've reached a level of about $20. And people take that and they extrapolate it out and extrapolate it to $100. In fact, I think that process will reverse. We already have heard from Coinbase that they're implementing two very important optimization techniques. One is segregated witness to reduce the cost of inputs. And the other one is batching where you have a lot of outputs per transaction. So at the moment, if you do a withdrawal on Coinbase, it's going to do a transaction just for you, all of your own, and you get to pay the full cost of that. But with batching, if they have, for example, 500 withdrawals in a minute, they can do one transaction that represents all 500 withdrawals, sourcing only 
only one input, 500 outputs, maybe one change. And instead of one input, one output, and one change, you're producing less change. You're batching the outputs. You're batching the inputs as a result. And that can significantly reduce the load on the network. So imagine now if these things happen, the load on the network goes down. And then you start having people using Lightning Network, which then means a lot of the transactions that previously happened on-chain also go away. The load goes down again. Maybe some of the big exchanges, single-point payment channels between very, very commonly used paths, like BitPay to Coinbase, Coinbase to Bitstamp, etc. That would be a very logical thing to do. Now the load of the network goes down again. At that point, maybe we're back to fees in the three to four three to four dollar range. And at that point, opening four, five, six channels on Lightning Network becomes very cost effective because then you can run all of your transactions over that, or at least most of the very small value transactions. So I think we're seeing all of these optimizations. In the pipeline, we've got a, a number of other optimizations, Merkleized abstract syntax trees or MAST, which is an optimization that's going to also help with Lightning Network. That reduces the size of a Lightning Network funding and closing transaction or settlement transaction. Again, more reduction in fees. So every one of these little optimizations, if applied broadly, reduces the demand for blockchain space, which then reduces fees for everyone, whether you use that optimization or not. One of the questions that I have about Lightning, it's easy to take advantage of it or, or to take advantage of uh, that its presence because of how long ago in Bitcoin time it happened. But for a very long time, there was a genuinely well-founded concern that America would interpret mining as constituting money transmission, that miners would money transmit. And then, you know, we had a FinCEN ruling that basically said mining in and of itself didn't constitute money transmission. The more I learn about Lightning, the more I kind of think that we're reopening the can of worms. What makes you a money transmitter and what doesn't? And I think that Lightning from a technical perspective is phenomenal in the same way that obviously mining for Bitcoin is. But I think that it presents an even grayer sort of environment for understanding if operating a Lightning node in and of itself would then make you a money transmitter. And I don't know if anyone's had any conversations or thought or put out any legal theory to that effect yet. Well, the same thing could be said to apply to running a Bitcoin node itself, given the fact that what you are propagating is uh, transactions made by other people. But again, that's the kind of consideration that becomes very difficult to enforce, because if you do make that judgment, that means everybody running that software in the US is automatically requires a license, which simply means that most of that ends up moving outside of the US without it stopping. As I've said many times before, you can regulate your country out of Bitcoin, but you can't regulate Bitcoin out of your country. All it will do is move the infrastructure components. Are you describing exactly what happened to mining? <laughs> Well, I think mining was pushed by economic considerations more than regulatory considerations, specifically to do with both the distribution and cost of electricity more so than anything else. This is one of those cases where it's very difficult to apply these broad-based regulatory frameworks if you know that there's this ability to do regulatory arbitrage with extreme ease. 
And that will simply push a lot of this outside of the country where it's even less easy to regulate. So I don't really worry about that. I think we, we should worry about that if and when those rulings happen. And until then, it's a curiosity, right? Lots of things can be declared illegal, whether that stands up in court, whether it has relevance to the operation of the network, that will take a long time to figure out. And I'd rather solve the problems that actually exist rather than the ones that don't exist yet. I think it's kind of similar to the legal status of running a Tor node, which as far as I understand, I mean, don't quote me on this, but as far as I understand, it's not illegal, but it could trigger suspicions or cause you to be targeted in some maybe extra legal ways. It's legal, but the cops might show up at your door. <laughs> right, exactly. Which is why librarians are doing it. I mean, there's a whole movement in the in the That's US. That's right. I was going to mention that public library that was that fought this battle with the Department of Homeland Security. I guess there was a library that was running a Tor node. I don't know if it was an exit node or what, or if it was just a relay node. But it, it was an exit node. Okay. And that seems to me to be a very appropriate function for a public library. But they had to fight to do that. They got investigated by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and stuff like that. Ultimately, I think they did, the library did prevail and was able to run this node. And part of their purpose for doing so was academic, by the way. So, I mean, there might have to be some battles like that, but I feel like lightning nodes could potentially be even way more popular than Tor nodes because many, many people, everyone basically who uses cryptocurrency will want to use the lightning network. Uh, well, here's another interesting consideration there. You don't make any money at running Tor nodes. Right. Yeah. You could make some at least small fees with all of the considerations that go into cryptocurrencies. Even if you make very, very tiny fees today, the question is, you know, you're making those fees by applying computing and bandwidth. That's a relatively fixed cost. And you're making this income in cryptocurrency that has potentially some appreciation potential in the future. And that's not a bad business model to do. Essentially, you're creating a possibility for yourself to do exchanges from fiat that you're paying your ISP for bandwidth to cryptocurrency that you're earning on the Lightning Network and uh, without any of the exchange fees. Given that something like Coinbase isn't probably going to integrate something like the Lightning Network for the reasons that we talked about. Do you think that people will have to have Bitcoin in order to participate in Lightning? Or does Lightning potentially offer a way for people who don't have Bitcoin to actually buy Bitcoin already in the Lightning Network? Do you think that's something we'll see? Well, that's the other, I think, important point, which is Lightning Network is not a Bitcoin-specific network. It's already been demonstrated to offer cross-currency channels, routed channels, which means that you can put Litecoin in one end of a Lightning Network and get Bitcoin out the other end. The channels themselves act as a decentralized exchange capability. And so you can have payment channels on the Lightning Network that are Bitcoin payment channels and Litecoin payment channels on the same node potentially, and then route between them with an exchange rate that you define, effectively turning yourself into a decentralized exchange. Which means Lightning Network is from day one effectively a multi-currency network, which creates some really interesting possibilities. Because, for example, you could fund your Lightning Network channels with Zcash and end up getting Bitcoin. I like to always be the guy to bring up that I'm most excited for when Bitcoin Cash supports Lightning. What, yeah, why? I, I don't get it. Can you explain that? It, it, it was, it, it's basically saying I'm, I'm excited for when Bitcoin Cash implements SegWit, we can get Lightning. 
I, I've heard quite a few people involved in Bitcoin Cash discussing adopting the technologies necessary to implement Lightning. And those technologies do not include SegWit. You can implement Lightning as long as you have a malleability fix. Any malleability fix will do. Now, the, the disagreement was about whether it should be SegWit that is the malleability fix. They could do flexible transactions. They could do some other form of malleability fix and implement Lightning right off the bat. I think you're, you're going to find this kind of doctrinal aversion to implementing SegWit after the fact on Bitcoin Cash, but they might end up doing another transaction malleability fix and Lightning's just around the corner then. Right. SegWit was a malleability fix that could be pulled off with a soft fork, whereas on the Bitcoin Cash side of the fence, they don't really care about hard fork versus soft fork. So there are solutions, but it is funny. Just in general, all of this is still feels very speculative. So I'm looking forward to talking with Elizabeth in a couple of weeks and getting some idea of kind of what we're looking at in terms of timeframes from someone who's spending full time living in that world. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by EasyDNS.com. EasyDNS is the only domain provider that takes Bitcoin and Ethereum. Blockchain startups are challenging the status quo. When yours attracts attention, you need to know that your domains will be safe. EasyDNS loves blockchain and they're a stickler for due process. As a valued client, you are leading a revolution that Easy wants to be a part of. So when it's time to register or renew your domains, remember, EasyDNS is the official domain provider for letstalkbitcoin.com and a great place to be. Back to the show. So on the context of speculative things, I looked up BitConnect on CoinMarketCap and I found out that today, even today, January 18th, they have over $60 million in trade volume on a project that's not live anymore. It, it, it's dead. Yet, just because something's dead doesn't mean it can't be listed. Just because something's dead doesn't mean you won't speculate over it. It gets kind of crazy. It's like, at what point will BitConnect end? And then at what point will it stop being traded? I think are two different time periods. I've often objected to the uh, idea that you hear a lot of times people saying Bitcoin will go to zero. And I say, if you're an economist and you say that, well, one of the things you have to reconcile is the fact that very few currencies in history have ever gone to zero. In fact, if you go to Italy today, you can still buy denarii, Roman denarii, a currency that hasn't been in circulation for, what is it, 1,200 years? And yet, and yet, still waiting for it to go to zero. <laughs> you cannot get them for free. You cannot get them for free. They have, they have historical value. They have souvenir value. They have all kinds of other values that are not direct economic medium of exchange value, or they have store value in terms of the precious metals that they're made of. But in any case, it's actually difficult to make a currency go completely to zero. And we're going to see that with BitConnect, just like any others. I mean, what? Doge hit. <laughs> what was its market cap recently? <laughs> Coins never die. They just get cheap enough to be attractive in the market. I'm actually kind of proud to say this. I don't know what BitConnect is. So if someone could explain it to me. I don't know what it is either. Well, I know a little bit about it enough to kind of go through it here. BitConnect came across my radar over the summer because it has the ticker symbol BCC, which of course was the one that originally was uh, considered for Bitcoin Cash before it became BCH. 
And at some places, it actually still is BCC. I think Bitfinex still lists it as BCC. So there's some confusion about that. So anyways, BitConnect is by all appearances and now seems to seemingly confirmed by government actions is basically a Ponzi scheme that was set up with a cryptocurrency at its center. And the basic shtick was that it offered to let people receive interest on their digital coin balances by lending or investing their capital. And they, of course, you got to do it, guaranteed a return. And the return in this case was, uh, it looks like 1% per day. So there are more details than that, but it sort of doesn't matter because when you see that element there, when you see the guaranteed returns thing, that's the big flashing warning sign that says that whatever this company is doing, chances are pretty good it's a Ponzi scheme because <laughs> guaranteeing returns is hard. <laughs> I can give you an even harder and faster rule of thumb which is any project that promises you a better percent return than the actual Ponzi Ponzi scheme is probably a Ponzi Because <laughs> Ponzi was only promising 7% per week. <laughs> I believe he was promising 7% a week, and this guy was promising 1% a day. Compounded, that's more than 7% a week, yeah. <laughs> that's a good rule of thumb. I mean, anytime something sounds too good to be true, obviously, you got to be skeptical Again, like if somebody had some algorithm that could generate a 1% return per day, why would they tell everybody about it? Why not just keep it to themselves, right? And how long before that level of return incented thousands of other people to try to figure out that algorithm, reinvent that algorithm, etc.? The way markets work precludes the very possibility of such a scheme existing long term, right? Because eventually, the outsized returns are going to create enormous motivation for someone to come into that market and replicate that model. And secrets like that cannot be kept. But even if you know it's a Ponzi scheme, even if you think it's a Ponzi scheme, and you're not willing to invest, oh, God help you if you try to tell other people about that. So how I came across this was when I started seeing a lot of ads on my YouTube channel where um, BitConnect was, can I call it BConnect or are they going to get offended? <laughs> uh, BitConnect was advertising directly on my channel. And it wasn't a significant amount, but it was happening often enough. And then people on Twitter started telling me, hey, there's this Ponzi scheme and it's advertising on your channel. So I tried to block it a few times, but it's a bit of the whack-a-mole game where every time I block one URL, they simply launch it from a different URL and it keeps running around in circles. And eventually I made a public announcement on Twitter and I said, you know, based on what I've seen, BitConnect may be a Ponzi scheme. And the reason, of course, that I would use language like that, expressing an opinion and not a fact or any determination, is because I don't have the time to do the research to figure it out. More importantly, they have money. Guess why? They're running a Ponzi scheme. So, and they can sue me. And they can sue me in 100 jurisdictions. And then I'm going to spend a very long time <laughs> trying to fight the fact that you know I defamed their fantastic, very much not a Ponzi scheme in court. So I said, you know, based on what I've seen and the fact that they promise guaranteed returns, I, I think this may be a bad thing. So, of course, at that point, thousands of people came out to thank me for revealing the truth and saving them from imminent financial destruction. Not! I got crucified. 
so many people came out and said, oh, that's what they said about Bitcoin. How, how could you betray the cause of cryptocurrencies? It's obviously not a Ponzi scheme. After all, I've been making consistent returns every week, <laughs> which of course, <laughs> that's how a Ponzi scheme works <laughs> until it crashes. In fact, right up to the very end, it, it seems to work very well for a small percentage of people. And people do not want to hear the truth. So uh, I got a lot of very, very strong reactions to that. Uh, and of course, you can't tell people how to do their investing. You can't teach that kind of thing. It has to be learned through experiential learning. And that reminds me of the Josh Garza saga from a couple of years ago with the uh, Hashlet Miner Ponzi scheme, where they were selling cloud mining, but actually it wasn't cloud mining. Actually, it was just a Ponzi scheme. And I remember we had Mike on from CoinFire at the time, and he had been doing investigative kind of reporting on that. And they wound up suing him and it like he won. Uh, he won and it actually went pretty well for him. But it was like, it took a lot of his time. And it was the same thing. It's like you said, because they're running a Ponzi scheme, they have the money to pay for the lawsuits. And it's the same thing that we saw with Let's Talk Bitcoin kind of in the, I mean, not the early days, basically the entire time, which is that the people who have money to advertise for the most part are people who you wouldn't really want to take money from because they're running things that either are Ponzi schemes or that have characteristics of them, where essentially they can pay for that sort of marketing, where a lot of projects, at least in the early days, really didn't have the budget to pay for advertising because they weren't scams. It's the biggest one of those I've ever seen, certainly in the cryptocurrency space. One coin, I don't really think we consider that a cryptocurrency, but Bitcoin, BitConnect really was. I don't know that it really was, actually. From what I understand, most of these tokens, as they're called, were deposited on a single exchange, which means that it was a custodial wallet. And I don't know that there was actually a blockchain or a cryptocurrency behind it. I have no idea, but that's, I'm not sure that there was a blockchain behind it. It could have been the uh, same as OneCoin. Well, then let's take a step back and just say that none of us have looked into this enough to really be able to comment definitively on it. I think the thing that we can say fairly definitively uh, is that just be careful with your money out there. Be careful when you're looking at these projects and stuff that appears to be too good to be true probably is. I also think a good rule of thumb is to, whenever considering giving money to something, take the name of the product and the word scam and then press enter on Google and then just spend spend a small percentage of the time you spend hyping yourself up about it. So if someone makes a claim, think in your head, is this a valid claim or an invalid claim? How could I disclaim? Uh, and then just sort of weigh that. Well, I, ju I just applied that rule of thumb and I typed in Bitcoin scam and Jamie Dimon came up. Should I listen to him? I think you should look at the merits of his argument and then see if they hold water. Yeah, critical thinking. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a lot of work. I saw a new study that came out out of Cornell, and we've had Eamon Gurren and Sarah on the show before a couple of times, actually, to talk to us. But this is his work along with a couple of his colleagues. And it's a study about decentralization in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I thought this was really interesting, and some of the conclusions surprised me. There are several different conclusions, and of course, you can read the original paper. We can link to it in the show notes 
and stuff. But this is sort of an executive summary for someone who's less technical like me. Basically, they studied the Bitcoin and Ethereum networks, and they came out with the conclusion that the decentralization in both Bitcoin and Ethereum could really be better. There's a lot of room for improvement in that sense. One of the conclusions that kind of startled me was that at least 56% of Bitcoin nodes could be positively identified to be located in data centers. So, I mean, that's more than half of the nodes in Bitcoin. By contrast with Ethereum, they could only trace about 28% of them, those Ethereum nodes, to data centers. But they were saying, well, this is probably because of mining. But Bitcoin nodes also tended to be more clustered together in geographic locations, whereas Ethereum nodes were more like spread out around the world in physical locations. Did you guys know about that? I mean, does that surprise you as much as it surprised me or... I think it's a question of how you're measuring decentralization, but the... Yeah, obviously there's decentralization in different spheres, but yeah, just in terms of like the location of the nodes, that was what they were focusing on in that part. Didn't surprise me. The one part about it that surprises me a little bit is that when you're talking about like the size of the blockchain or how fast things are being added to it, Bitcoin's older, but Ethereum is actually already bigger in terms of size and the number of transactions and things like that, number of uh, actual data being added on a daily basis is greater than Bitcoin, right? Yeah, it is. And there's a couple of interesting effects that have uh, changed this dynamic, but I think it's important to look at this in terms of maturity and historical trends. So if you look at the early days of Bitcoin, there were a lot more nodes Anyone want to hazard a guess as to why that was? Because there was no SPV. Because there was no SPV. I remember in 2009, 2010, 2010, I had an Android wallet for my phone and it was literally just a full node. I was I was going through like hundreds of megs on my phone just to use Bitcoin. Yep, I had the full node on my phone up to uh, 2012. And I ran a full node on my laptop and desktop up to about 2014. So what really changed was somewhere around 2013, you start seeing the development of very sophisticated, very um, high-performing, lightweight wallets. Until that time, if you want to run a wallet, you have to run a full node. So the number of nodes is equivalent to the number of users. As many wallets as there are out there, there are the same number of full, fully validating, and at the time that meant full archival nodes. And that's another important distinction, which we'll get to in a second. So both fully validating, it means they, they validate all transactions and blocks, but also full archival nodes, meaning they kept a full copy of the entire historical blockchain. At that time, there was no distinction. Now there is. You can run a fully validating node without it being fully archival. And so why does Ethereum have a lot more nodes than Bitcoin? Well, because people have wallets, but there is the caveat that myetherwallet.com, MetaMask, there are a couple of other wallets out there where the intention is for it. So, so it's not, it's not like there are no alternatives out there for running a full node, but I do see what you're saying that it's a lot earlier in the process, relatively speaking. And so more people are running wallets, which are full nodes. Right. So Ethereum is effectively in the historical range of where 
Bitcoin was about mid-2013. At the beginning of 2017, really the only lightweight nodes you had out there were MyEtherWallet, MetaMask, and Jax for Ethereum. And even those were not very broadly used. I remember Jax had all kinds of bugs at the beginning of 2017 and was a bit problematic to use. It's, it's a lot better now, and it's a fully-fledged wallet that also supports tokens. It didn't support tokens for a whole long time. Needed is MyEtherWallet. So now imagine most people at the time were running Ethereum using Mist. And when you load Mist, what does it do in the background? It launches Geth and does a fully validating, fully archival node. And that stopped happening. And the reason it stopped happening was because of the denial of service attacks on Ethereum bloated the blockchain so much that it was impossible to maintain a fully synced, fully archived node. So um, all of the nodes in Ethereum now, Geth and Parity, by default do not do full archival and do not do full validation. They completely skip over an entire chunk of, of 2015 because that's when the denial of service attacks happened. And they move until they're past the hard fork and validation becomes feasible again. And they don't archive the full blockchain. They do what's called a fast sync. That's the fault. So first of all, they're not archival nodes anymore. And secondly, you don't really need them to run a wallet anymore. And so the number of nodes in Ethereum has started declining precipitously. I have a prediction for you. Run this study in two or three years, and Ethereum nodes will be about 56% in data centers, and fewer people will be running them pretty much where Bitcoin is today. In fact, there'll be fewer people running archival nodes, because by that time, the Ethereum blockchain will probably be 10 times larger. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. Um, I want to talk about another one of the conclusions, which this is interesting because it ties in with the block size a little bit. So one of their other conclusion was that Bitcoin underutilizes its network. And I'm just going to read a, sh a couple of paragraphs from the summary here. Bitcoin nodes generally have higher bandwidth allocated to them than Ethereum. Compared to our previous study in 2016, we see that the medium bandwidth for a Bitcoin node has increased by a factor of 1.7x. The typical Bitcoin node has much more bandwidth available to it than it did before. Higher allocated bandwidth indicates that the maximum block size can be increased without impacting orphan rates, which in turn affect decentralization. If people were happy about the level of decentralization in 2016, they should be able to increase the block size by 1.7x to clear almost twice as many transactions per second while maintaining the same level of decentralization. Caution, circular logic, caution, circular logic. So isn't 1.7x about, you know, the, the size of the effective block size increase with SegWit? Yes, but here's the interesting caveat. Well, well, you remember the previous statistic you just said where 56% of the nodes in data centers versus 20% for Ethereum? Mm -hmm. And then we go on to draw the conclusion that Bitcoin nodes have more bandwidth available to them. Guess why? They're in data centers. <laughs> and what happens if you actually use all of that bandwidth by increasing block size? You push more of them to go in? Data centers! Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so the reason, reason that you have more bandwidth is because of centralization of nodes that is displayed in the beginning of the article as a bad thing. And then you get to this chapter and it says, well, clearly we could increase the block size by 1.7x to clear as many transactions as we wanted. 
Well, of course we can. We can increase the block size. The reason that a lot of people do not want to increase the block size is because it leads to centralization, which is exactly the thing that created that surplus, the abundance capacity and bandwidth that we see, because a lot of them moved into data centers. Do we really want to exacerbate that problem? And that's, I think, one of the issues in this particular article is that you have to decide, is decentralization a good thing? or not. We didn't actually free up this bandwidth. We This is the bonus we got from paying the price of centralization. And we don't want to use that bonus because if we use that bonus, guess what we're going to do? We're going to pay the price of centralization yet again on an even bigger scale. Mm, yeah, I like it, getting that perspective out there. I mean, and it was, as we've talked about on the show before, centralization or decentralization isn't so black and white. There are a lot of different areas in which a network could be centralized or decentralized, and you have to kind of step back and look at the bigger picture. So I think that we should talk about that bigger picture, which is basically that, you know, one of the other conclusions in this paper is that neither Bitcoin or Ethereum, as far as mining is concerned, are very decentralized. And in both cases, the top four miners in Bitcoin and the top three miners in Ethereum control more than 50% of the hash rate. There's a very big difference between miners and mining pools. I think what you meant to say was the top four mining pools. That is not the same as miners. In fact, there's no way to really determine who's mining with the mining pool and how many miners own the actual hashing hardware that is behind a pool and who owns that. You could look at the mining hardware manufacturers as well as part of that picture. Right. So those are three different things. So there's concentration of mining hardware manufacturer, there's ownership of mining hardware and mining farms, and then there's concentration in mining pools. Those are three completely different metrics. And part of the reason they should be completely different metrics is because they have different implications for control and they call for different remedies if you want to address them. Okay. So then let me rephrase that. Uh, that <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't mean to be nitpicky. Uh, I, re I really do think those are really salient points. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. So the term miner, when you talk about it in a technical sense, has to do with the person who's actually or the entity that's actually controlling the pool. But the pool is what's actually providing the horsepower, right? Uh, some of that might be coming from the actual miner, but a lot of it in many of these situations, or most of it or all of it in some situations, is coming from a decentralized group of people. And that is less problematic as a point of centralization because those miners can choose to peel off if it becomes obvious that the pool that they're participating in is acting malicious, but it's an opt-out mechanism rather than an opt-in mechanism, right? Uh, if, a, if a pool goes malicious, then you, ha then, like, you have to proactively say, all right, I'm going to change what I'm doing there. That's correct, because we've actually seen this in practice. And uh, I'll remind you of the ghash.io briefly achieving just over 50% and then very abruptly losing about a fifth of those mining farms who left because even the possibility of giving them that kind of control was already too dangerous. So that, that that's a really important difference in terms of ownership of the actual equipment because it's the people who own the equipment who decide which chain to mine under what consensus rules and how to collude potentially for a 51% attack. So to uh, borrow terminology from our other conversations, we're talking about layer one miners, right? Those would be pools. And then layer two miners are people who participate in pools and mine through that. Other way around, actually. Layer one is the physical layer, which is the hardware, and that's the mining farms. 
if you like, layer zero is the manufacturer of ASICs. Layer one is the mining farms, which is the hardware. And layer two is the aggregation of that hardware and voluntary pools. Okay, so the centralization that we see here and that they're talking about in both the case of Ethereum and Bitcoin has to do with the pool layer. But when we actually get down to the who owns the hardware layer, yes, there's some centralization there, but it looks nothing like the centralization that we actually see in pools. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. And that's, yeah, so the pools, the layer two actually acts as an abstraction layer behind which is hidden layer one and even layer zero. You can't tell who's mining because they're hidden behind mining pools. You can't tell what hardware they're using because that's hidden behind the farms. So you can only see down to the pool and the layers below it are invisible. So we really don't know how decentralized the transaction process and capabilities of either of these chains really are. We can just kind of make guesses based on behavior that we see. So the anecdotal evidence that you brought up of the, uh, you know, the G hash where it visibly became over 50% and then it visibly dropped dramatically below that because there became public concern about it is sort of the evidence that suggests that the majority of mining hardware is owned by the same entities. But at the same time, if you're a G hash and you do own all of that, you could do the same thing, right? You could just turn off 20% of your miners and that would also look like the same thing. So I guess we just really like, Outside of anecdotal stuff, it's really hard to quantify any of that. That's correct. Although, of course, if you name your pool by the name of your mining hardware and also your mining company, so if you're making the ant miner and you name your pool ant pool, some people may assume that the majority of mining hardware operating behind that pool is yours. That doesn't mean that other people can't connect to that pool. So that's just one example. A lot of people draw conclusions and assume that there is quite a bit of concentration of mining hardware and farming miners themselves behind two or three of the Bitcoin pools that seem to be working very closely together. That would be, um, for example, Antpool and via BTC and others. But again, there's no way to, to prove that. I guess we have to remember, too, that nothing is as centralized as the Federal Reserve and <laughs> some of these so-called blockchains that remove any of the actual distributed nature of of blockchains, you know. Well, we know centralized stuff works, right? Like we know centralized stuff works. We know that decentralized stuff works at relatively small scale. The question is, how much decentralization is required or is what we have now, given that it's still working? Does that demonstrate that what we that the system that we have is sufficient for moving forward? Or does it just speak to the fact that we haven't had an attack strong enough to actually cause any sort of problem with this. I also think it comes down to how you define or understand what decentralized Because for any system trying to achieve efficiency, consolidation of power, which say that you know is is something that is necessary, but that the delegation of that power may not necessarily also be consolidated. So it's this notion of like this person could be the person that has all of the power. But at any one point, 300 million people could just unelect that person and put another person in power. Sort of changes the dynamic of what centralization means. So it's sort of this notion, and it's the argument that a lot of the proof of stakers make, which is there's the difference between being the operator, being the ones who put that operator in that that position of power, and that should that operator do anything that deviates with those that put him into power, he would immediately see himself without that power. In the same way, when Chihash had more than or near 50% of 
of the delegatory power in Bitcoin, you saw all of the individual delegates unelect cash from being the consolidated entity with their power. I think that another thing that's important to understand, which is foundationally different than something like the Federal Reserve, is that while power is consolidated or has some consolidation, and from that perspective alone, they might look similar, the more foundationally important aspect that I believe associated with decentralization is how they achieve and maintain that power through how liquid, how frictionless is it for those that gave them that power to take that power away and then assign it back to somebody else. And in Bitcoin, where we may have five or six pools that are basically the functional hash rate, and you might say, well, the Federal Reserve has 12 you know, federal chapters, so the Federal Reserve is twice as decentralized as Bitcoin. The Federal Reserve is twice as consolidated in power as Bitcoin. We have infinitely more power or hundreds of thousands of times more power to divest that consolidation of power from from the, those four Bitcoin pools and give them to another four Bitcoin pools than we ever would have the ability to take away the power from those, you know, 12 or 14 branches of the Federal Reserve. There's also the golden rule of illusory power, which is that some powers are almost ceremonial in nature, whereby you have the power as long as you do not attempt to exercise it. I like to use the analogy of the Queen of England, who has the power to disband Parliament, and she continues to maintain that power as long as she doesn't exercise it. If she ever exercised it in contravention of popular demand, she would immediately be stripped of that power, as would her heirs, right? And she has that power because it's ceremonial, and as long as she doesn't exercise it capriciously and simply corresponds to the consent of the governed, she can keep that power. The same thing applies to, for example, the five consensus parties in Bitcoin. So you've got developers, wallets, exchanges, merchants, miners. And if you think about those constituencies, you know, the developers have power unless they propose something that nobody wants to run. The miners have power, unless they try to abuse that power to do something like a contentious hard fork, in which case they quickly find it evaporating, or if they accumulate 50%. So you can seem to have a lot more power, as long as you don't try to exercise it in contravention of the other four constituencies of consensus. And as soon as you do, whoops, it's gone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by EasyDNS.com. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie, Andreas, Jonathan, and Adam. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and featured music by Jared Rubens and The New Time. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. Have a good one.